You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. I am joined today in studio by Roger Simpson. He is an iconic writer in the world of television here in Australia, and his latest and first novel, Halifax Transgression, has just come out, and I've had the chance to read through it. Following on from two television series, Halifax FP and Halifax Retribution, this is a continuation of Jane Halifax's journey. Roger, welcome to Death of the Reader. It's wonderful to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. I suppose the thing that I wanted to get into first, Roger, is that I think many people would come to Halifax Transgressions with the insinuation that it is a book adaptation of everything that you've done on screen. But that is very far from the truth. This is a very unique story in the world of Halifax. Give me just a brief overview of how you came to novelize Halifax and why it was a continuation rather than an adaptation. Yes, well, it's it all started with the publisher coming to me, Simon and & Schuster, and saying, uh, have you ever thought of doing books? And I said, you, do you mean adaptations of the television series? They said, no, brand new standalone novels. I said, well, no, I haven't. I'd never thought of that. But um, And they said, well, why don't you? So I did, and that's where Halifax Transgression came from. So it's really a continuation of the of her journey following retribution, mm. but it's written in a way that you don't have to have seen the television series to to understand it. It hopefully is standalone, although it's that character. Well, yeah, I think the one thing that was really interesting to me is as someone who has recently put myself on a crash course on Halifax to prepare for this, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting how not only it was it was very standalone as a story, but it very intelligently played with previous pieces of her story, particularly yes. Eric Ringer returns from yes. season three of Halifax FP. Yeah. And that episode of the program was very notable for having Jane deal with her own trauma of her father's death yes. in the same way that she's now dealing with the aftermath of the 2020 Halifax Retribution TV series. Yes, yes, and another death that she has to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose I've kind of answered my own question here, yeah. but talk to me a little bit about why you chose to go back to Eric Ringer and that particular episode as our connection to the original series. Well, it was um, the reason I went back to Eric Ringer is that he was originally played by Hugh Jackman, <laughs> who I could never have afford to hire if I did a television show, not these days. He's yeah. a superstar, so he's unattainable. But his character was uh, attainable and, and useful to me, so I put his character in the book. And he had also had a bit of a fling with Jane way back then, and it was kind of unfinished business. And then he had disappeared from the story because he became too famous and too expensive. <laughs> and I thought, well, a book is a good way to bring him back. So... Um, that was the motivation, and that's why I selected, of the 21 telly movies, that's why I selected that one, because it had Hugh Jackman and a nice little frisson between them that I thought might be able to go somewhere. Yeah, I also think it's interesting because Afraid in the Dark, as I said, is noteworthy because it helps her deal kind of with her own traumas with her father. Yeah. And then the same thing happens in Retribution with the death of her husband, and now we're dealing with the aftermath of that. I guess, how deep do you think you can dig on a protagonist like Jane Halifax before you have exhausted all ways that her story can personally connect to the cases she's trying to solve? Well, they don't all have to deal with her, but it's inevitable that when she deals with the character she's analysing in order to sleuth her way to the truth, that it uncovers certain things about herself and her family and her background and her motivation. And she's constantly asking the question, why did I choose this line of work to, to walk on the dark side of life? It is pretty, um, it is pretty uh, forbidding sometimes. And so she's constantly asking that question and she's kind of addicted to it. She's addicted to the criminal mind and to analyse it and to figure it out. 
And she brings with her character a lot of humanity. So she's always looking for the humanity, even in the worst of crimes. And transgression is an example of some of the worst of crimes that we can come across with all these medieval torture-inspired murders. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting then that you paired her with Melissa Woods, who is the widow of the first victim in the story. Yes. And the way that they are both dealing more or less with the same trauma of having yes. lost a husband in bizarrely grotesque circumstances. Yes. yes. You know, th- there's a certain strangeness to writing an experience like that that hopefully no one has ever had it. Hopefully you've yes. not had it. Well, no, I haven't had it. I haven't had it. Um, um, not yet. <laughs> I, I guess the thing that I'm curious about is that when you're putting two characters with these this very bizarre circumstance, how do you avoid them kind of spiraling out of where the audience can reach? Because it, it's a circumstance that we can't picture, right? Yes, that's true. But but I think that, you know, transgression, I think Jane says somewhere in the book that uh, she's, we all transgress. Yeah. Some of us a little bit, some of us too much, like uh, the central character in, in this book. But somewhere we're all on the spectrum, she says. Mm. So she's fascinated by that, and I guess I am too. Um, through Jane, I'm exploring you know, the transgressive mind, and we all do it. Even my favourite Coppinet does it, Showbag. Mm. Uh, even we catch him doing something that even he's surprised that he's doing. Yeah. And it's if you throw characters into the right circumstances, these little surprises sort of pop up. I didn't plot that. It just happened. Yeah, well, I, I think that's one really interesting question that you ask in Transgressions, which is the identity of the culprit is torn between this idea of the sadist or the torturer. Yes. And the thing that came out of that to me is I very much felt, whether it, you did it intentionally or not, that you were kind of talking about the relationship between the author and the audience. Yes. Where for an author, it can somewhat be that mechanical torture playing to the tropes, the archetypes, yeah. uh, and the audience is there for the sick joy of it. Yes. Was that something that you kind of were conscious of as you were writing this novel? Uh, yeah, I, I was. And I had to ask myself, why are you writing this novel? Because you can't just do it for six thrills. There's got to be a purpose <laughs> beyond that. Otherwise, someone's just going to throw the book at the wall. You know, at some point, they'll think, well, what's the point of all this? Well, the point of it is to explore the transgressive mind and its most extreme example. Mm. And by reflection, reflect on the rest of us and the reader as well. And there's a lot of gradations of transgression in the book between the, the worst and showbag. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, so that, that, that's the kind of motivation. The, the first thing I ask myself is why am I writing this book? And it's mm. not just for sick thrills, I hope. Yeah. Um, because I actually don't like... Uh, gratuitous violence. I think it has to serve a purpose. Mm. and Otherwise, it is just a form of pornography and I don't want to be writing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I suppose the other thing that kind of comes out of that is that for the audience in this novel, there is a certain pleasure for fans of the TV series who are now getting to see the internal monologue that would be anathema to most television programs where you're able to see the way that sometimes Jane thinks astrologically, the way that she thinks about how she dresses, which is the sort of stuff that would only make director's notes um, normally. How was it getting to put that on page? Well, it was um, a bit intimidating because I'd never done it before, but it was also very exciting to to explore her internal world, Mm. you know. The mind of Jane Halifax, which you only infer in television. Yeah. That, you know, the main statement in television is portray it, don't say it. Mm. So you can't sort of spell out what she's thinking. Yeah. I, I think it, it's also sort of interesting in that sense because so often, going back to that torturer and sadist example, a lot of that comes down to presentation. You know, mm. the crimes in this novel are very grotesque. And in a weird way, you've 
pitted that up against the way that Jane portrays herself. We get to see the conscious decisions behind the persona that we've seen so much. Yes, yes. Well, she has to analyse, as I said earlier on, but she has to analyse why she does this work. Mm. And when it's this confronting, she has to figure out why she's doing it. And, of course, she notices the impact it has on the cops around her too. Mm. And and part of her role is to actually help them through it as well. So she's kind of a, a counsellor as well as a psychological sleuth. So she's all that. And constantly analysing why. Why wasn't she the lawyer her father wanted her to be? Yeah. <laughs> why did she go off on this tangent? Yeah, I think it's really interesting as well looking back at all of the relationships that characters have had with the other directions that they could have gone in life. Mm. The idea that all of these transgressions to some extent come out of the things we said no to. Yes. Um, for example, uh, Isaac, who was a business partner yes. of a couple of the victims, you know, all of the things that he agreed to rather than didn't turn down, all yes. of the, like, Jane with her father. How different do you think these characters could be fundamentally? Is there a sort of determinism that goes into the way that you think of their choices? I, I think I raise the question rather than suggest any answer. Yeah. And I like that you think about that and I hope the reader thinks about that. But I don't want to project it too far because we are the choices we make mm. and we can't do much about it. We're kind of stuck with it. <laughs> so it's enough to raise these questions. Yeah. But I, I don't, I'm not trying to give people a second chance or anything like that. Well, the next thing I wanted to ask, Roger, is that one could describe this as a, a second chance for your writing, not to say that it, it was is. going anywhere. Um, but I, I love the idea that you've come from this very different world of television production. Yeah. We've spoken previously about how so much of the structure of television production was a safety net, if not a uh, opportunity to dissuade blame yes. uh, between your yes. colleagues. And you, you've said that you were afraid to some extent of coming in because there was no one to shift that blame onto in writing. I was terrified. Yeah. I, I, this time around, I couldn't blame the director. I couldn't blame the actors for misinterpreting the roles. Yeah. I couldn't blame the network for bad programming. <laughs> I couldn't blame the investors for pushing it into, into the wrong market. Mm. I was, it was just me and the, and the reader and no one in between. And I was terrified. I felt very naked and exposed. And uh, I'm getting more comfortable. I'm writing the second book now. I'm a little bit more comfortable, but mm. I wasn't that comfortable the first time around. I was looking over my shoulder all the time, checking what I was writing, thinking, um, is this what a novelist does? I didn't know. You know, yeah. It was brand new for me. But it has given me a whole new career. You know, It's amazing. I never thought I'd get it at this stage of my life. I know. And it's so interesting too because I think that to some extent you can also see in transgressions the way that your writing evolves through the course of the novel. There's so yeah. many bits of dialogue at the start of the, the start of the book that are so sharp in a very television way where I'm yeah. like, this deserves a musical score for what this character's <laughs> just said. Yeah. You know, there's almost a, a, a gap where the soundtrack needs to be, but yes. the, the longer yeah. the novel goes on, the writing becomes, uh, it's so hard to like tangibly describe it, but it becomes more novelistic. You know, over the course of this process, writing the novel, did you find yourself un understanding your own writing in a different way? I Began to, you know, I, I still, it's still brand new for me. I, I'm getting a little bit more comfortable with it and a little less tough on myself. Mm. And I, I, I use dialogue a lot because I've been writing it all my life. Yeah. And I, I like it and I like the rhythm of it. Mm. I like the music of dialogue. When I'm writing dialogue, I usually have a, a, a box of strepsils beside me because I, I repeat a line to myself yep. in a whisper <laughs> and that gives me a very sore throat. 
So I as do I whisper exactly all my dialogue, yeah. do you do the same thing? I do the same yeah. thing. But you, I think you have to do that when you're writing dialogue because if you don't say it mm. and it doesn't have a rhythm and it's not and it's too difficult to remember, well, the actors are going to hate you for it. Yeah. So you've got to rehearse all that, whisper it to yourself. My wife used to ask me who I was talking to when I was working in my yeah. in my uh, study. Who are you talking to? I said, I'm talking to myself. Well, I'm not really talking to myself. I'm just hearing my character's dialogue and seeing that they've got music and rhythm and sense and, and nothing extraneous. And I think I think you've you've kind of caught on to something there, which is what I was trying to put into words just before, which is at the start of the novel, I think that thinking back on some of those lines, the dialogue is more musical for an individual character. Their line will be a whole musical phrase, whereas yeah. the longer the book goes on, I think the dialogue starts to become more of a band ordeal where the rhythm is between multiple lines, yes. and that might be where I'm seeing that difference. Oh, that's fantastic. This is, I love that. I, I love that <laughs> analogy. That's, that's, really, that's really great because that's, you know, that writing is that you, know, you write for each member of the orchestra mm. and then they finally come together. Sometimes it's just a little soloist out the front with all the rest of the orchestra waiting. Yeah. But when they all come together, that's when it really starts to work. Yeah, because I, I, think, I think of that. It's a lovely analogy. Thank I, you. I can't. <laughs> I can't describe what happens in the scene but the scene at the end where jane poses her final theory and she goes through the long monologue about all of the different options mm. the, the interjections that everyone else makes in that particular scene i'm thinking like yes that is the response in the call and response of a musical phrase it's, yes it's, it is it's quite clever it, you, it is quite musical when you think about yeah. it, the structure of it yeah yeah. Which, which, you know, coming from a world of murder mystery, I guess, is not something that we see terribly often because so often the denouement, the breakdown scene at the end of a novel is so mechanical, which is something that mm. even though you do have that entire structure towards the end of the novel, you avoid that mechanism with this yeah. musicality, it seems yes. like. Well, I'm going to hang on to that now that I understand my own writing better. <laughs> Thank you for that insight. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess the next thing that I wanted to ask, talking about mechanisms, is lengthwise a TV script for a telemovie. How long words-wise is that relative to transgressions? Well, we don't count the words the yeah. same way as novelists do, mm. but but I equate the book with eight episodes of television. So yeah. it's a, it's the same as Retribution, mm -hmm. eight, eight hours of television. Well, it's not really eight hours because commercial television has all these commercials in them now. <laughs> so it's eight times 45 minutes, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but it's it roughly equates to that. It feels like about the same amount of work. It feels about like the same amount of plotting. Uh, and I actually wrote it in eight parts, although by the time – it was published, the editor thought it was unnecessary. The parts didn't make any sense to her at all. Yeah. And I, they only made sense to me because I was trying to get my mind around the length of a novel. Mm. It had to be 80,000 words or thereabouts. And yeah. I thought, well, if I split that into eight episodes, I can mm. kind of understand it. And we know what the first episode has to do. We know what the last episode has to do. Mm. And then you, the hardest work in writing is always the, the second act. The easiest one is the opening. Yeah. You can think of a thousand openings. And the hardest one, of course, is the ending, which I start with. I start with the ending first. And I figure that out because if you don't know, the great Bill Link mm. gave me that piece of advice. He was the creator of Columbo. Yeah. Who I was lucky enough to meet uh, many years ago. And he said, if you don't have an ending, don't leave home. <laughs> <laughs> don't leave home without one. And that's, uh, I think, especially in, in crime. It's all about the ending. It's mm. all about where you're taking the reader and they, it, it better be good. It better be satisfying or 
they're yeah. going to be grumpy. <laughs> it's interesting hearing that from a writer's perspective, and it's definitely something that each writer will have their personal take on. But for me as a reader, I think of the way that I approach murder mysteries, which is very much that I will pitch my entire solution go through the book and see how it works. And before reading the ending to see if I was correct, yep. I'll go, mm, well, this didn't quite work. Let's pose mm. another theory and go back yes. through again. Yeah. And I, I like that inversion of how a creator can use that as well, because we've yeah. been seeing so many other crime novels that is engaging with other media, like uh, Amy Suda Clark's Girl 11, Kate McCaffrey's Double Lives, yep. and your Halifax novels. We're so often used to books being adapted into other forms where do you think books can learn from other media? What experience do you think television has allowed you to bring to books that maybe we haven't seen? I haven't thought about that, <laughs> so I haven't any quick answer to it. What can we? What could we learn from television and books? I'm not. I'm not an, enough of a novelist yet to yeah. to pretend to tell other writers how to write yet. I, mm. I mean, if people were asking me advice about television scripts, I could give that. But how? How, how can television inform the novel? I don't know. I hope I'm doing it unconsciously. And yeah. I like the musical uh, allegory. That's an illusion. That's great. I, yeah. I guess the, the, the example that I, I like that you've brought up as well is the episodic structure of it because oh, yeah. um, so often we think of the three-act structure yes. as the, yeah. the absolute be-all and end-all and sometimes yeah. – Novels can fall apart when they get to the third act. Mm. I know The Floating mm. Admiral, which was put together yes. by Agatha Christie and yes. co, uh, famously got to the third act and had to put one chapter in there that was about half the length of the entire book because they realised <laughs> they had so many loose ends to tie up. <laughs> to, yes, yes. Um, well, I'm obsessed with the three-act structure. Yeah. I, I think it's um, not only every episode needs three acts mm. and not only the whole piece needs three. Uh, three acts. I think every scene needs three acts. Mm. I think every scene needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think, it, and, and if it doesn't have that shape, it's to me, it's not satisfying. Mm. It, it just can't randomly start somewhere and randomly finish and just vamp on, vamp on the spot to keep <laughs> the musical terms going along. Yeah, it's. I think it's all about the three act structure, right from episodically, or in the book, it's a chapter, uh, or even in. A scene. Yeah, it's so interesting, like, breaking it down in that way because I think most people would approach a novel in the way that you've said where it's counter to what you said, where they yep. just think of the three-act structure of the entire story rather yes. than the flow of scene to scene. Yeah. And it's interesting that coming from television where you're working with such a big team, how you can kind of keep those ideas contained so that everyone can work with them. You know, mm. when you're filming a scene, you film a scene with its structure, you understand the way that that works so that it's easier to communicate with the other yes. teams that you're yeah. working with. Well, I suppose so that's a lesson from television is yeah. that we edit as we go. Mm. So in the writer's room, we're editing the story, we're editing the characters, we're editing each other. Yeah. And so we're constantly editing as we go along. In the terrifying world of publishing, you, you, you finish the first draft and hand it over and then the editing begins, Yeah, which seems crazy to me because it's not my background. Mm. I'm used to working, as you say, with a big team of writers in a writer's room. I'm used to that. I'm used to that interchange. The the solitary long-distance journey of the novelist was something I wasn't ready for. And, uh, and then the editing begins. But mm. I suppose the advantage of that is that there's no – no one's interrupting you in your original thoughts. They just want to see it down on the page. And, and that is a freedom you don't get in television. Yeah. Television is fast, fast, fast. It's mm. got to be done really quickly. Once a show's commissioned, you, you've probably only got three to six months to write it. So that's why you have to bring on a team of people. Mm. 
whereas a book you can take all year to write. So you don't have that pressure to suddenly, because you waste all this time, you, you do the pitch, you write the outline, and then the powers that be have to go away and fund it. And then they come back and say, right, it's funded, we're filming in three or four months' time, so you've got to go like crazy. Well, we don't have that pressure in the, mm. the book world. So I, I wouldn't like to that lesson to come from television to, <laughs> to books. Well, and I think I'm getting used to being edited after the event, yeah. not during and not before. And it's quite a freedom when they say, I say, well, do you, do you want to see some, you know, the, the whole synopsis? Not necessarily, just a bit of a pitch and uh, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose the other thing about working with a team is, of course, that you've commented many times that, you know, Jane Halifax was written for Rebecca Gibney. Mm. And um, I'm curious, like, how writing for actors has informed the way that you work with characters. Like, who is Showbag in your mind? He's an old... Uh police advisor from the Crawford's days called Jim Pulse. Um, Hector Crawford was a very smart man. He used to have two police advisors, mm. one by the book, very straight-laced, that was Ron Knight. Mm -hmm. And this other guy who used to be a, a country um, senior sergeant who used to run the town and wouldn't worry too much about the law <laughs> and just keep things in order, mm -hmm. you know, biff people out of the pub when they got noisy. He didn't arrest many people. He'd mm. lock them up overnight if they were troublesome. And he had a different way of policing. Yeah. And uh, I loved Jim Pulse and he was a great help to me. And uh, in the early days at Crawford's, we used to go out in the, in the uh, patrol cars. We used to go down to St Kilda, mm. jump in the back of the, of the patrol cars as they went round sort of dealing with all the, you know, crimes, you know. You'd never be allowed to do that today. There's too much <laughs> occupational health and safety. You know, yeah. The police force would be horrified. But we used to go down, jump in the back of the car and just follow them around and see what happened. Mm. And Jim Pulse made that happen through his connections with the uh, Victoria Police. So he was a great old-fashioned cop. I like to think they still exist. Well, Showbag did. Showbag does, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so he exists in the book at least. But do you still think of most of your characters as particular people that you're inhabiting into those roles? Do you think of them as actors playing those roles when no, you write? No, I, I just take the inspiration for that mm. because then they become too narrow and I'm not informed enough about these people. Yeah. You can be totally informed about your character. So they're inspiration for characters but they're not. I'm not writing them. I'm not writing Jim Pulse. Yeah. Also, side note, I love the idea of, of, of Jim Pulse as like a – it's almost a pun in and of itself and it's it just is. his name. It is. It is. It's another musical uh, yeah. expression too. <laughs> Pulse, pause, you know. I suppose the, the last thing that I wanted to touch on is now at the end of, of Halifax Transgressions, getting into this world of writing, is it fear or excitement that you take into the next Halifax novel? I'm always fearful when I'm writing. I think it's <laughs> – it's a healthy it's a healthy situation. I think you've got to you know always read in the morning what I wrote the day before mm -hmm. and make sure that it's up to scratch and if it isn't well I that's what today's going to be rewriting <laughs> yesterday. So I mean I'm I, I think a, a healthy fear is good. Mm. I'm confident screenwriter. Yeah. I'm not yet a confident novelist. Um, I hope I'll be more confident at the end of book 2 than at the end of book one. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. That's usually a good sign. But I'm not cocky. <laughs> I'm not cocky. And I don't. I feel I'm in a, a brand new world. Mm. I've I still got my L plates on, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, th I think it's really good. I, I really enjoyed not only the way that Halifax is 
Transgressions is an incredibly polished novel and has the professionalism of someone with your experience, but also has that scrappy edge where at the book, as I said, I can see that your dialogue changes over the course of the book as you kind of discovered it. And I think that as a reader, I find that really exciting. Oh, fantastic. Um, Thank you. And congratulations on the publication of Transgressions. Thank you very much. I'm very flattered. Thank you. It's a great start. Right. (laughs) Fantastic. All righty. Well, Roger, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast for this discussion with Roger Simpson. You'll hear bits and pieces of this conversation scattered through episodes down the line, but I figured we'd put it out early alongside the release to celebrate what I thought was a great, fun book. And of course, thank you to DMCPR and Simon & Schuster for hooking us up with a copy of the book. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss anything here on the podcast. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour.